This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Here is this week's message. Let me ask you if you would to take your Bibles and turn over to 1 Peter chapter 4. This morning we're back in our series. So over in 1 Peter chapter 4 on this um, post-Thanksgiving morning, we want to examine a portion of Scripture that, as you notice on your outline, I've entitled Deep Thoughts. Deep Thoughts. How many of you have enjoyed or experienced the kind of twisted humor of Jack Handy in his uh, Deep Thoughts? Let me just see. I want to know how many people stay, out, stay up and watch Saturday Night Live. There you go. Well, if you haven't, here's some of the examples of what I mean by his kind of silly deep thoughts. Here's one of them. He says, instead of having answers on a math test, they should just call them impressions. And if you get a different impression, so what? Can't we all be brothers? (laughs) If you ever discover that what you're seeing is a play within a play, just slow down, take a deep breath, and hold on for the ride of your life. Okay, so what's the speed of dark? (laughs) To me, boxing is like a ballet, except there is no music and no choreography and the dancers hit each other. (laughs) And here's a deep thought kind of story I like best. I remember that fateful day when the coach took me aside. I knew what was coming. I said, I'm off the team, aren't I? Well, said the coach, You never really were on the team. You made that uniform out of towels. And your helmet is a toy space helmet. You show up at practice, steal the ball, and make us chase you down. It was all true what he was saying. And yet I thought, this coach sees something in me. Some kind of raw talent he can mold. But that's when I felt the handcuffs go on. Well, those are some deep thoughts to have fun with, and, well, quite frankly, about seven of us had fun with those. (laughs) Maybe eight. This morning, what I want to do, though, is look at some different kinds of deep thoughts. They're really real deep thoughts. They're not meant to be funny, but they are meant to be formidable. And it's good to come after Thanksgiving and, and address some kind of formidable thinking. These thoughts are challenging. Uh, These thoughts that we'll see this morning are really soul-searching for any Christian. And for those of us that God gives the ears to hear and to receive, these kind of thoughts are meant to be literally life-changing. So I want you to pray with me for just a moment. Would you bow your heads? Let's ask the Lord Jesus if He would this morning speak to us, meet us where we are, because there's so many of us that are at different places here today, but just to talk with us as we move through this passage of Scripture. And Father, this morning as we look into Your Word, as we look into the deep thoughts of Peter as inspired by Your Holy Spirit, Lord, help us to sense and to know that You're speaking to us. I know for some of us this morning, uh, these thoughts will be a call back to a life we once knew and enjoyed. For others of us, though, Lord, and this is my particular prayer, there may be some of us that our whole life we've been out of sync with Christianity. For whatever reason, we've never really felt in, even though we believe. 
I pray that Peter's words, his expressions, his language, his use of terminology, Lord, would be empowered by your Holy Spirit to minister to that kind of heart. So we thank you this morning for your word, even as we read it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read these first six verses, which we'll be covering this morning. I want you to listen very closely. We're going to walk through this text. There's some very difficult uh, terminology here that we'll have to pick apart. But follow with me as I start in verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality and lust and drunkenness and carousals and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. And in all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. But they shall give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Now, perhaps as I move through that passage, you said, you know, there really are some deep thoughts there. In fact, there are two of them that we'll examine this morning. The first one is presented in verse 1, and we'll have to pick that verse apart. And then there's some explanation. And then when we get to verse 6, Peter introduces us to a second and concluding deep thought. So let's look first of all at the first verse and begin to understand what Peter has to say to us. Notice he says, let me read it again. Therefore, now listen very closely to it and watch it on the page. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Now listen, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What does Peter mean by that? I want you to know if you aren't quickly grasping his big idea, you are not alone. This is, a, this is a difficult verse, and most of the commentators have struggled with all kinds of interpretations as they've wrestled with what Peter's trying to get at here. Is he implying that to suffer is the way to eradicate sin in your life? Is he speaking about martyrdom? Is there some kind of implication to martyrdom here? with those Christians who we know in the first century were under intense persecution. And notice in the second line where he says, he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Is that talking about us as believers? Or is that just simply a second reference to Jesus Christ? Should it be capitalized, he? See, those are all the questions that commentators wrestle with and we need to take the time to wrestle with in order to get the clear thought. So what I'd like to do is hover over this passage for a moment and break it down along three lines. Here's the first one. First of all, I want you to notice, look at verse 1. Everybody look at the page. I want you to look at the page today. Notice, first of all, the first phrase. Because in the first phrase, this phrase invites us to think about the way Jesus lived. It says, therefore, okay, he's kind of summarizing, since Christ suffered in the flesh. Okay, what is he talking about there? Why did Christ suffer in the flesh? Probably would be the appropriate question. And you and I know that anyone who dedicates their life to a singular cause, especially a very lofty cause, in Christ's case it was doing the will of God, that that in a sense brings on a certain level of suffering. If you're on a sports team and you want to win the championship and you have your sights set on winning the 
the national championship, that is going to invite, isn't it, a certain level of suffering. If you are in a company and you want your company to, to, to reach the highest levels of corporate success, to get there is going to require a certain level of suffering. Those are the inevitable consequences, so to speak, of kind of a singular mission. It reminds me of the story of the uh, violinist who played the great concert. And after he was finished, and everybody was just simply mesmerized with the music, one ardent admirer ran forward. And she said to this uh, violinist, she said, you know, with stars in her eyes, I would give everything to be able to play like that. And he said, I did. If you're going to have a lofty ambition in life, it's going to invite a certain level of suffering. Jesus Christ experienced that. Anyone will. If you have your sights set, whatever it takes, whatever the cost, whatever the risk, whatever the price, and whatever the pain, you're going to go for it. Jesus Christ did. His life was wholly devoted to a singular cause, and that was doing the will of God. That's what he was committed to. Listen to what he says in John 4, 34. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 6, 38 says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And it was this kind of resolute devotion that made Jesus' life so attractive, so magnificent, so powerful, so impactful on his world. But at the same time, it also came with a price tag. It invited suffering. Think about it. Internally, he had to wage war with his own nature, with his own flesh. You know, Jesus was a man like us, and his flesh didn't always want to do the will of God. He had to wrestle with it. He had to fight with it. He had to suffer in it. He had to contend with it. He had to battle with it, just like you and I, to do the will of God. When Jesus is literally sweating drops of blood, wrestling with his own flesh to do the will of God. There's always an internal battle to live a magnificent life. And then externally, Jesus had to contend with public opposition that first started with just misunderstanding. And don't you hate to be misunderstood? Don't you hate it when people, you're trying to do the best thing, but people just don't understand, and they take it and twist it and make it the wrong thing? Jesus had to contend with that. Then it moved not just from misunderstanding, to, but to persecution. And then finally, of course, to his own execution. Christ suffered in the flesh for a reason. And the reason was because he was fully, wholly devoted to doing the will of God. That's why he suffered in the flesh. And that's our first observation. Now let's look at the second phrase. Because that tells us that we're to arm ourselves, and this is where it really gets deep now. Hold on. It tells us to arm ourselves with the same kind of thinking. In fact, the literal phrase in verse 1 reads this way, arm yourselves with the same, and you might underline the word purpose because the literal rendering is with the same thought. Arm yourselves with the same thought. Grasp the life of Jesus Christ and arm yourself with the same way of thinking. Meaning this, and listen, this is so important. If I am to live the Christian life the way my Heavenly Father expects me to, and I hope that's why you're here today, at least to consider that. If I'm going to live in the light of His expectation, the way He crafted me from eternity past, the way He meant for me to live out my design, the way for 
me to gift the world with my gifts in such a way to advance the kingdom of God, if I'm going to live that kind of life, then I must be armed with the thought that I have to have the same level of devotion as Jesus Christ. I have to have that. And I must expect with that devotion a measure of suffering both internally and externally. You know, some of you said to me last week when you saw the birthday party, you saw more than 20 years of history being played out. And hopefully one of the things that emerged from those 20 years of history was at least a certain level of consistency. Did you see that? From the very beginning, people being captured with a radical thought of Jesus Christ and carrying even the day where we preach it, hopefully just as radically. But here's the point. Radical is normal in the New Testament. Jesus never expected when you embraced Him for you to be anything less than a revolutionary. With a revolutionary way of thinking. And that is that you would sell yourself out to Him and His cause and live wholly devoted unto Him whatever the risk, whatever the cost, whatever the pain, and whatever the process. That's a deep thought. That's a really deep thought. And you know, for many Christians, they've never come to that way of thinking, so their Christian life looks to everybody around them normal. But you know what normal is in the kingdom of God? Lukewarm. Notice what he says. Arm yourselves. It's a call to arms. It's a call to getting ready and resolute. That's what he's asking you to think about. Because anything less than this armed kind of thinking, now listen very closely because some of you are here, anything less than this armed way of life, this revolutionary kind of difference making that I'm being called to, anything less than that invites constant compromise in life. Because anytime life gets feisty or rough or hard, Anything less than a resolute commitment gives up. Anytime I experience persecution, I will tend to back down and I will tend to run. Anytime my flesh wants something different than God's will, I find myself defenseless and unarmed. And I have no other alternative but just simply to give in. If I want the Christian life to be easy and tame and soft and natural and clean, and we all want it to be that way, I've got bad news. It's not. Do you hear me? It's not. It never will be soft and clean and easy. It will never be that way. This is not heaven. And if we think it is or try to make it that way, we will be constantly swimming upstream against the will of God and the calling He has on our life and life will just always be out of sync. And there are many people who've joined the church or come into the church or grown up in the church and they hear about radically committed followers of Jesus Christ and people who give their life and they, they hear about their testimonies and their experiences, but it's never a part of their life. And they can't understand why and so they question the reality of the people they're hearing. Now you nod your head with me if I'm making sense. Am I making sense? Because I know it's after Thanksgiving and we're a little sluggish. Okay. I think that is so important. 
If I do not have that kind of devotion, you know what my Christian life will look like? It will feel erratic. It will feel unstable. It will feel listless and most of the time empty, even while I go through my Christian experience. All this because I've not counted the cost of true Christianity and embraced it with a whole heart, and that's what the Apostle Peter's speaking to. And it's a hard truth to hear. But it's not an invitation just to hardness. It's an invitation to impact. You know, I observe that there are few people more devoted to their sport than golfers. I know some of the art and golfers in our church, and I'm really impressed with, really, their dedication. They'll go anywhere to play golf. And many times they will suffer some of the most horrendous conditions to get in 18 holes, whether it's cold or wind or rain or lightning or some day of insufferable heat, and yet they go on. That's part of the obsession of golf for a lot of people. But you know, devotion to golf probably reached its zenith during World War II. And I want you to listen to the temporary rules for golfers that was posted at the Richmond Golf Club in Sudbrook Park, England in 1940. Here was one of the rules. Players are asked to collect the bomb and shrapnel splinters to avoid damage to the grass cutting machines. In Rule two, during gunfire, while bombs are falling, players may take shelter without penalty for ceasing play. <laughs> Here's rule three. The positions of known delayed action bombs are marked with a red flag at a reasonable but not guaranteed safe distance. Rule four. A player whose stroke is affected by the simultaneous explosion of a bomb may play another ball and be assessed a one-stroke penalty. <laughs> Is that not incredible? Whatever the cost, whatever it takes, whatever the risk, we're going to play golf today. But here's the question. Have you armed yourself with the same kind of thinking as a Christian that says whatever the cost, whatever the risk, whatever the pain, I'm going to live this Christian life out. I'm going to make a difference in my world. I'm going to be wholly devoted to the will of God. Let me tell you, Christianity, I know this is hard, but Christianity is not a fair-weather game. There will be times of intermittent suffering and social persecution and alienation and huge forks in the road in which if I choose this way, I sacrifice all I've worked for but I sacrifice it for the kingdom of God. There'll be moments of desperate humility where you have to humble yourself and admit you've got a problem or you're wrong. There will be times where you will battle for days with an internal struggle between your wants and the will of God. That's the game of Christianity. It will get into your pocketbook. It will get into your sexual life. It will get into your marriage. It will get into your work. It's an infection that creates a fever. And you have to decide. Finally, I want you to notice this third observation about verse 1. It takes us into verse 2. I want you to notice that once we're armed with this kind of thinking, we've got this thought, we understand what the price is, knowing that part of the commitment will be suffering internally within ourselves and externally with our world, 
Notice the outcome if we go through that. First of all, it says at the end of verse 1, that having suffered, but now having surrendered to the complete will of God, we'll cease, and I think what he's saying, from a life of sin. We won't go on this erratic path. And secondly, I want you to notice that we'll go on in verse 2 and make the most of our lives by not living for the lust of men, not just constantly being entrapped by this world, but suddenly we'll begin to express ourselves in the will of God with our lifestyle. Now, with those three detailed observations being made, let me give you what I think is Peter's first deep thought from verse 1. Here's what it is. Real life is nothing less than a devotion, a full devotion to Christ. Now, I know that's simple words on a phrase, but you know what? It's one of these things, it'd be just nice to go off and sit on a rock somewhere and just think about that. Have I done that? Is that me? And maybe is, is that what's wrong? I want you to notice one word up there. You might underline it in your notes. It's the word devotion because devotion is an old word. We don't use that word much anymore, but it really is power packed. I looked it up in Webster's and Webster's summarized it with this singular phrase. Webster says devotion is simply this, to carry on regardless of what happens. Carry on regardless of what happens. The point is this, only until you and I make that kind of personal commitment or return to that kind of commitment, because maybe we've strayed from it recently or maybe even the last few years, only until we take on that kind of full devotion will our Christian lives take on real meaning. Will we experience God, His blessing, His power, His purpose, and a consistency that makes other people attracted to us or repelled by us, but we don't care because we've decided we're going to live it out regardless of the cost, regardless of the risk, regardless of the price, regardless of the pain. We've made that kind of commitment. You know, to bring real life out of the canvas covering of flesh that's over there in that tent, it's going to take this Word. And that's what Peter's preaching to us today. It's going to take the resolute commitment of devotion to Christ. That's the only way you can live out the Christian life, fully and meaningfully. I want you to turn to a verse that summarizes from a different angle. It's over in Galatians. Keep your finger where you are in 1 Peter, but just turn over to Galatians because I'm going to ask you at the end of the message to memorize this verse. It's one that we fed on in the 60s. This was kind of a theme verse for us back in the 60s. And as I was talking to Doug Sherman backstage, you know, last week in Fayetteville while we were celebrating our 20th birthday, kind of commemorating our roots in Fayetteville, that very Sunday night, there were over a thousand youth students gathered at University Baptist Church being challenged to be radical, radicals for Christ. Come full circle, hadn't it? It's exciting. Here is the verse most of us fed off of in the 60s. It's, Gal it's Galatians 2.20. Here's what it says. Now listen very closely. This is a deep thought. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Think about that. And ask yourself the question, is that how I think about life? When life begins in me every day, when I start my engines, 
When everything comes to me and I have to make a decision and the first cause that jumps ahead of everything else to help shape that decision or that choice, is it this? I have been crucified with Christ and I myself no longer live, but Christ lives in me and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. Is that me? It's holy ground we're on when you think about that. Because nothing less will do if we really want to follow Jesus Christ in the way that Peter's talking about here today. Now the reason I say all that and the reason I introduce that deep thought to you is because not many of us know Jesus Christ in that way from our backgrounds. That hasn't been stated enough in our upbringing. And what we get out of that is what I call the first half of Christianity. You know what the first half of Christianity is full of? And it's preached everywhere and it's all true. The first half is all about forgiveness, salvation, redemption, regeneration, God's help, God's comfort, God's work in us, God's assistance, God the counselor, and heaven. And boy, don't you like all those things? And they're all true. But it's just one half of the faith. You know what the second half is? It's doing the will of God. It's advancing the kingdom of God. And it requires me crucifying myself to Him. And my will and my ambitions. It means bringing everything under a singular devotion and living it out, whatever the cost and whatever the price. That's what this verse is telling us to do. So I want you to listen now. Only until I embrace Christ with that kind of devotion am I going to be armed with the whole package. And will I be a force in the world in which I live? In fact, when I begin to live that way, I begin to live differently and it begins to create a stir among my family, among my friends, among my workplace. That's exactly what happened to these Christians and that's exactly why you get the next two verses. Verses 3 and 4. Look at them. Can you all identify with this? He says, for the time is already past. It's already sufficient for you to have carried out one way of life. And he talks about this desire of the Gentiles, which is basically paganism. Having pursued a course of sensuality and lust and drunkenness and carousals and drinking parties, he calls them abominable or lawless idolatries. And he says, and all this, your friends, your family, your co-workers, they're surprised all of a sudden by your change of life that you do not run with them in the same excess of lifestyle, the same dissipation, and they have no other option in looking at your anti-social, you think it's anti-sinful, they think it's anti-social lifestyle, and so their only option is to make fun of you and to malign you and to mock you. You know, I can still remember when I decided, I can still remember, it's this fresh, when I decided that I was going to put devotion ahead of social acceptance. It was 1968. I was in a car packed with students, fraternity brothers and so on, headed for another alcohol-saturated dance. And we were all laughing and joking. It was Friday night. Everybody was just in the spirit. And the glass of beer came to me. And I already knew what I was going to do because I'd faced this and failed on numerous occasions. But now it was handed the bottle of beer to me. And I quietly tried and discreetly to put it off. No thanks, I said. 
But you know when you say no thanks in an alcohol-charged atmosphere, there's always somebody that it catches their attention. And one of my friends turned to me and said, come on, you know, let's go. And so I was pressed a little further. And so I discreetly tried to pass it off and let it go. But he wouldn't let it go. So he began to say, why not? I suddenly felt myself on the stand. What's wrong? You're not feeling good? Question after question. And you know, in kind of an instantaneous moment, because I'd rehearsed this moment a number of times, I blurted out, I can't do that. And then he said, why? And I said, because God doesn't want me to. It was like, it was like I shouted it, even though I whispered it, everybody just kind of went in slow motion went, what? And everything got real quiet. Even as the words spilled off my lips, suddenly I was an anathema. And when we got to the party, everyone fled. You see, I understood the cost of that. There are some of you who are facing the same thing. And you know, it wasn't long until just a few days later, the rumor got around that I was a religious nut. Whenever you decide, listen, whenever you decide it's time to become a fully devoted follower of Christ, I want you to notice again verse 3. I want you to look at it. Because if you make that decision, even here today, time will run out on drinking parties. I'm not saying it. The Scripture's saying it. You've already had enough time to do that. Time will run out on one-night stands, on carousing around on surfing the net in pornography. That time is past time. On taking advantage of a brother in a business deal. On oppressing the poor with your business practices. On just getting a buck just because you want another dollar you don't care who it hurts. Because you don't have enough time to be a fully devoted follower to Christ and be a Gentile too. There's not enough time to do both. And that's what he's pressing for here. You need to know one excludes the other. Now I want you to hear me very carefully. When you mix, listen, when you mix Christianity with what you know is sin, you know what you get? When you add this to this, Christianity to a sinful, I'm going to live whatever I want to do, lifestyle, what you get, what that equals to, now listen, is southern religion. That's what you get out of that. You don't get the real thing. You get a perverted, twisted, good-looking, socially acceptable, southern kind of religion. It's an unholy mixture of regular church going with a life as you want to live it and you don't care. A religion that turns and mocks and maligns eventually, those who are serious about following Jesus Christ. The greatest critics of the evangelical church is not the world. It's the liberal church. They laugh and they mock and what has happened to those people? You know, I got a letter from a young lady this week and I asked her if I could read it and here's what it said. She says, I've attended fellowship for two years after leaving another church. I realized that I was only getting the social gospel. You know, with those easy-to-hear, won't-offend-anyone kind of sermons. My friend and I were all Sunday morning Christians. But with my new faith, they found my new desire to truly know God and serve Him weird. 
to truly know God and sense Him. They laughed at me and said that I'd turned into a religious fanatic. One day God brought an old memory to the forefront of my mind that eventually led me to where I am today. I remember several years ago seeing a Speak Up for Decency bumper sticker on a car and asking a friend I was riding with what it meant. And she laughed and said, oh, some church in West Little Rock puts them out. They think being a Christian should change your whole life. And then she says, I decided to visit fellowship the very next Sunday. Isn't it strange that they think Christianity should change your whole life is weird for Christianity? And yet that's what it's become. I want you to know anyone who decides to devote themselves to follow the will of God regardless of cost will create a stir. You cannot help but create a stir among your social environment. And that's scary. But now the question is, who are you devoted to? Your image or the kingdom? Real faith always creates a surprise. It's kind of like the surprise I had from a different angle this week when I read about Ira Glasser, who uh, spoke here in Little Rock for the ACLU State Banquet. Some of you know that Ira Glasser is the... Uh, executive national director for the ACLU, and he made some comments that were reported in the paper, and, uh, well, I'll let you decide as I read them, but here's what he said, according to the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. He said, most people who talk about family values are talking about the values of the 1950s, a decade that was, in fact, morally depraved. Instead, people should aim for the values of the 1960s, the decade of moral redemption. Glasser said that uh, government is troubled with a preoccupation with drug use, sexual practices, and abortion. And then he concluded this way, a moral society does not focus on individual behavior. Boy, now I've heard a lot of things that surprised me, but nothing made me more breathless than reading a statement that said the 60s was a decade of moral redemption. How could anyone... Because I was there. Anyone believe that? But then I thought to myself, you know, he's thinking the same thing about me. The stuff that he hears out of my mouth or the church's mouth, the evangelical church, or when one of your friends sees you do suddenly an about face in your personal lifestyle and suddenly begin to stop certain things everybody else is doing, you know what they say to you or about you behind your back? It's the same exasperation, especially when you say it's because I know God personally. They get away in the quiet moments and they say, how could anyone believe that? But you know what? I do. I do. And I believe it fervently. And my only confession here today is I wish I believed it more. More wholeheartedly. Eventually, though, we all know only eternity will vindicate one side or the other. Eternity has a way of silencing all the false claims of everyone with kind of an irrevocable finality. And here the Apostle Peter, as he writes, he understands that. He's a person who's witnessed firsthand the resurrection of Jesus Christ and one day who will die enthusiastically upside down in a, in a godless crucifixion. But you know what he says in the next verse? He sees eternity as the friend of Christians. Look what he says there in, in verse 5. But they shall give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. 
Paul says, I know about eternity. I've witnessed it. And so I'm going to encourage those of you who are being persecuted and are suffering, and some of you will be martyred. I want you to go for it. Because eternity is our best friend. That's deep thought number one. Real life is going to require from you a full devotion to Christ. Then look at verse 6, because he introduces a second one. He says, For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, that they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. What does Peter mean here? Here's what some have said. Some have said that he's suggesting the gospel should be preached to the dead, or will be. In fact, I read um, the neo-Orthodox English theologian William Barclay this week, and he says that this verse actually presents a second chance for those who've, dead, who've died. That after they've died, they'll have the gospel re-preached to them. So they have the opportunity again to believe. I believe the best and most reliable interpretation is the one that takes the dead of verse 6 as simply those who've heard the gospel before they have died. And so it would read somewhat like this. Let me kind of interpret it. You look at the verse and I'll walk it through with you. It would be something like this. Knowing, as verse 5 says, that God is going to judge the, the living and the dead. Here's what he's saying. The gospel has for this purpose been preached not only to the living, who's really who the verse is being addressed to, but even to those who are now dead, who heard the gospel. And the purpose for the living and the now dead to hear the gospel is that though they are judged in the flesh as men, though they were scorned as being foolish and stupid and living for a myth and those kind of things, the fact is that contrary to that opinion, as it says at the last part of verse 6, by believing this gospel, those people who are now dead or who are now alive, by believing that gospel, they will one day live in the Spirit. They'll inherit eternal life. Which brings me to deep thought number two. What arises out of that verse is just simply this thought. This is what I would have to sit on after reading that verse, and that's this. Each person here, each person here, must decide where life is. Now that's a statement that'll take you deep. It's one that oftentimes we just want to work hard and avoid. But the fact is, you can't escape that hard reality and responsibility. Every one of us has to come to a place where we decide what life is worth living for and then live with the consequences that come from it. It's like Dan Gerald said a few weeks ago, from today till the end of your life, everyone here will live for something. Everyone. But here's the deep question. For what? For what? Where does life start for you and me? Can I do something to just help us get away the distractions? Would you just close your eyes for a minute? Let me kind of walk down a little list, a checklist for you. Everybody just close your Bibles. We're done. Close your Bibles. Shut your eyes. And let me just, let's kind of get alone for a moment. And I hope that the Lord will use these final statements to encourage you, to make you think, but, but everyone, listen, everyone has something driving them. And the question is, what? And I think it's so important that you kind of get back to ground zero in your soul and ask the question, what starts life for me? Let me give you some options. You know, there for some people, life always begins with fun. Now, that may sound silly at the end of time, but right now it's very important to them. And as long as Christianity is fun and exciting, they'll be here. But that's not because Christianity is first in their life. It's because fun is first in their life. 
And if Christianity stopped being fun, they stopped being Christian. Is that you? Some of us have life always start with our plan. We're planners. We're incessant planners. And everything must fit into our plan. And as long as God is blessing our plans, we're excited about being a Christian. But that only means that Christianity is further down the line in the stream of our life. But you let God not bless our plans or alter our plans or confront our plans and suddenly we bail because it's our plan. It's at our plan where life always starts for us. For some of us, life starts with self-promotion. If it makes me look better, I'm for it. If it doesn't, I'm against it. For others, it's acceptance. We desperately need acceptance. Life starts there. For some of us, it's achievement. For others of us, it's pleasure. For some of us, we have to have security. You take away our security and we'll run. But security is at the headwaters of our soul. For others of us, it's comfort. We need to feel comfortable. Life needs to be without pain. And we run to the place where it's safe. And so if Christianity is going to take me to a place where it's not safe, then that's where I and Christianity part ways. Where are you? Really, it's a deep thought I'm asking. Where are you? Because if you are going to name the name of Christ and embrace the whole package, if you'll really think deeply about life like Peter's inviting us to do, and if you take the Scripture seriously, then real life must start with a resolve and a resolute devotion to Jesus Christ and His will above everything else. When life begins, the fully devoted follower of Christ always first thinks Christ and His will. You can open your eyes. You know, how many of you have seen the little bracelet like this? It's got WWJD. My son gave me one. Yeah, what would Jesus do? You know, I love seeing that around kids' lives because really what that says is that wherever they are, whatever they encounter, there's this symbol on their wrist that says, before you do anything else, ask, what would Jesus do? But you know what? As good as those are, they can't be just around your wrist. <laughs> they got to be wrapped tightly around your heart so that the first thought of your life every day, in every occasion, is what would Jesus do? And the fully devoted follower of Christ knows what to do at that point. He's not taking just half of Christianity because he has this wrapped around his heart. He wants the whole deal. And so he submits his life to Christ, whatever the cost, whatever the risk, whatever the differences, whatever the pain. That's the whole Christian life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning as we finish up a wonderful weekend, hopefully for everyone, of Thanksgiving with friends and relatives, some of whom are probably here today. Lord, thank you that we have an opportunity to once again put a stake in the ground and remind ourselves of where real life is at. Our world doesn't believe it. Our world mocks it and scorns it. There are times even our heart rails against it. 
but it's this you've called us to. Help us to believe it. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.